environmental, conversations, on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This This is is Ecocast. Hello and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I am Brandon Gall, and thank you for joining us for another episode. Uh, if you're wondering, uh, Lindsay unfortunately um, had some stuff to attend to, so she was unfortunately unable to uh, make it for this recording. So it'll just be me today. I apologize in advance, um, but we have a great guest today um, talking about uh, comic books and specifically Aquaman uh, in, in, in uh, specifically. So um, we have Ryan Pohl with us today. Ryan is an associate professor in the English department at Northeastern Illinois University, where his research focuses on how popular culture helps shape and open our social and political imagination. Ryan teaches a variety of courses in popular culture, including courses on Marvel and DC Comics, Star Wars, and he once taught an entire course on Beyonce's Lemonade. In conjunction with teaching, Ryan is also a staff writer for Pop Matters, where he has written on everything from Mr. Rogers to indigenous futurism. Ryan earned his PhD in English from the University of California, Davis, with a concentration in critical theory. His thesis on American small towns in literature and politics became the basis of his first book, entitled Main Street and Empire, The Fictional Small Town and the Age of Globalization. He has peer-reviewed articles on Jordan Peele's Get Out, Bruce Springsteen, and a forthcoming article on Twin Peaks and its ecological imagination. So thank you so much for joining me today, Ryan. Thank you, Brandon. It's such an honor to be here. I love the podcast. I listen to it regularly. Great. Very yeah. excited to have this conversation. Awesome. Yeah, I, I am too. As a, as a comic book fan uh, myself, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. So um, rather than, uh, because obviously Lindsay is unfortunately uh, unable to be with us, so we don't have our folklore se- section. Um, so I was just wondering if you could kind of give our listeners a quick overview, background, history, uh, whatever of uh, Aquaman as a character for those who are less familiar with, with him as a comic book character. Yeah, so I'm going to guess if people, well, I'm not going to guess if people are familiar with Aquaman, but I would imagine there's not as much familiarity in the DC universe with Aquaman as like other DC intellectual properties, such as Superman or or, or Batman or Wonder Woman. Uh, But Aquaman was created in 1941 in the golden age of superheroes, like so right around the same time as like Superman and Batman. Um, And I think what is so important is that he's a self-proclaimed protector of the ocean. He's He's a pronounced ecological figure and one of the most prominent and conspicuous ecological figures in mainstream comics. Um, and Aquaman becomes, I think, really interesting because in the late 20th century, although he was part of the Justice League, the Justice League of America, he was on equal footing with Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman throughout most, most of the Cold War. In the second half of the 20th century, he started to become a joke. And I just found that just really interesting. Someone that's protecting 75% of the earth has become <laughs> so marginalized and forgotten. And that's so similar to the fate, I think, of the oceans and our social imagination. Mm-hmm. So I think Aquaman is such a rich history to think about. And, and to think about how does this comic and the multimedia, uh, you know, television, movies, how does it represent oceans? And how do those representations of oceans change from 1941 to the present? And also just really quickly, I just want to also just mention just two other characters within the Aquaman universe, which, uh, you know, might come up later, which they will. <laughs> but I think most prominently is one of his chief nemesis is Black Manta, who uh, was created in 1966. But when he he's a fully armored 
uh, supervillain, but in 1977, he took off his helmet and it was revealed he was African-American. And there's so few supervillains in the DC and Marvel universe who are, who are African-American. And when they are, they're usually fighting superheroes that are also African-American, mm-hmm. which have this really interesting racial tension between like is typically white, blonde hair, blue eyed superhero fighting an African-American. So like the racial tensions and, and and the history of racism, I think, comes up in really important ways to untangle. And I'm really interested how different writers, writers and artists create progressive narratives uh, around the, sort of this racial history and the way that DC perpetuates anti-blackness. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and that that's something I'm I'm definitely interested in talking about as well. Um, but I think for now, you know, with that little we've had that little bit of background into um, you know Aquaman as a character. Um, could you now just kind of give us a, a quick overview of your book um, and you know how you're looking at him and some of the different lenses that you're using? Yeah, so my book it's called it's entitled uh, Aquaman and the War Against Oceans: uh, Comics Activism. Um, and allegory in the Anthropocene. And my argument is that uh, Aquaman is this accessible popular figure for thinking about the oceans, the representations about the, the oceans, the materiality of the oceans. So in this way, I imagine the book having multiple audiences, uh, not just for comic book fans, but also I think is a, uh, I hope is a really accessible history uh, of the oceans and the destruction of the oceans over the course the 20th and 21st century, a much more accelerated form of, of, of ecological destruction through uh, ocean, ocean, ocean warming, acidification, plastic pollution. And I use Aquaman as a way to get to all these histories. Um, so in that sense, again, looking at him as this figure to sort of chart our ecological imagination. And, and, and again, just to complicate it and going back to Black Manta, I really wanted to focus on the series also because it also, the figure of Black Manta, who also figures prominently in my book, helps remind us that the ocean, although frequently represented as a sort of a white ecology, mm-hmm. is also central to African-American history, the history of colonial capitalism. So re- using Black Manta as a way to think about uh, the Black Atlantic as well. Um. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe kind of jumping back a little bit, but also just to kind of frame, you know, some of, some of the work that you're doing here. Um, can you talk about, you know, maybe like just some of the ways that, um, Aquaman is, you know, the comic books or the characters, um, is kind of challenging this, um, uh, you know, imaginary of the ocean, the oceanic, you know, uh, our, our, our ways of thinking about and through the ocean. Um, but I'm also curious if you, if while kind of exploring that, you could talk a little bit maybe about uh, the evolution of that character, you know, um, the early versions and the ways that his, the, the earlier relationships that Aquaman had with the ocean and the world that he came from versus, you know, in your book, you're primarily looking at a more recent run of uh aquaman comics uh so maybe just kind of tracing that evolution of that character and and his relationship to the ocean a little bit too yeah uh so aquaman's gone through many iterations but to uh from the beginning in 1941 i I find this just really interesting in so many different iterations he's had this hyphenated identity he's half human so he belongs to the human world through his father but through his mother he's Atlantean. So he's he's this oceanic being. And what does it mean then, like as he's trying to negotiate both sides of this hyphenated identity, how do you navigate being um, human, but also being a protector of the ocean and recognizing the inherent dignity and the worth of, of 
the maritime multitudes. So I think that is, is, is just such an interesting identity. And again, it's such an allegory for like, uh, you know, uh, for thinking about race, uh, mixed race superheroes or mixed race mm-hmm. identities in general. But to me, in my book, like I really mostly focus on is 2011 to the present, where there's much more of a focus to think about that sort of racialized allegory um, and skipping ahead. So uh, DC in 2011 <coughs> launched this new initiative called the new 52. And my book mostly centers on this initiative. And I'm really interested for a lot of ways, but like the, the, just the corporate culture of DC wanted to create this uh, brand new start for all their superheroes. And their goal was to like launch all new number one comics, mm-hmm. 52 comics simultaneously. But their initiative was to reach a younger modern audience. And their keyword was diversity and really trying to be relevant. So at the launch of Aquaman, there was this commitment from the head writer at the time, Jeff Johns, that he wants to make this ecological um, series, but also be sensitive to issues of race or gender. And the way that the series succeeds and fails, I find really interesting in all these contradictions. But ultimately, from 2011, we have this amazing, uh, just this rush of creativity, of especially for marginalized authors. So we have James Wan making Aquaman and casting Jason Momoa, who wanted to be involved because of his indigenous identity and to have an indigenous Aquaman. Brandon Thomas, the first African-American author to um, uh, African-American writer to pen Aquaman, mm-hmm. uh, which was in recent history. Kelly, uh, uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick was the first woman to pen Aquaman, Aquaman which happened you know, pretty recently in 2018, right before the launch of the movie. So there's all these really creative energies around Aquaman coming from different gendered and race perspectives. So um, I, I, in that previous answer, you've also been using um, – or I guess in previous answers, you've also been using this idea of allegory, uh, which I know is it features as as a major part of of your book. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that aspect of it? So how you're thinking about allegory? Uh, what are some of these allegorical connections that you're seeing between Aquaman and you know these racial issues, the gender issues, the ecological issues, stuff like that? Yeah. So. Um... So just sort of the theory, so just the, the theorization of allegory, I find just really interesting and so pertinent to thinking about ecological relations, just the etymology of allegory means like the other speaking. So, I mean, for ecologically committed authors and artists, how do you give voice and perspective to the underwater world, which is so alien and distant mm-hmm. from, our, our, from our own? So the various allegorical strategies developed by progressive writers and artists um, and also, and, and I sort of tease this out in my introduction and laying out this method, um, a critical theorist from Walter Benjamin to Frederick Jameson, they differentiate a types of, of, of allegory. And just to look in the most kind of like basic sense, regressive allegories are simplified allegories where there's like a one-to-one relation. It reduces the world in its complexity mm-hmm. in what's called progressive allegories opens up to multiple interpretations. And Frederick Jameson famously argued really pretty much throughout his whole career, beginning with the political unconscious, is that allegories are some of the most important ways that literature and culture works. And he even made this argument that as critics and students and scholars, we should learn to read allegor. We should learn to read allegorically, even if a t- text is not 
allegory itself. So just to mm. open up its multiple interpretations. And just sort of one way I, I sort of <clears throat> do this a bit is learning to read both with Aquaman and against Aquaman. So just for an example, mm. um, in the 2011, the New 52, the first issue, it begins like at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and it's a really, it's a great allegory, which I'll get into, but I also, I tarry at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in the way the comic doesn't to think about, you know, the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean is, is a mass graveyard of the Atlantic slave trade. And to think mm-hmm. about all the violences that are being archived at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean from plastic pollutions to all types of pollution is also this archive of racialized violence. So reading that sort of, reading the text almost against itself, because at least initially, it might not be as interested in race, but you can't bring up the specter mm-hmm. or the materiality of the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean without thinking about that sort of racialized history. Um, but but just the way that even the series itself, the New 52, is thinking allegorically. The first narrative arc, which was part of the movie, is the, the trench, which are like these monsters that live at the bottom of the ocean. Um, in, in, in the first narrative arc, like the, the monsters are called the trench and they're from the trench. You know, this material, this, 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 these deep the most almost inaccessible parts of the ocean that are, but the, the way the allegory is working, the monster has the same name as the geography. So it's making us think about this geography that's so distant uh, and sort of like to ruin the first narrative arc, Aquaman learns that these are not just monsters that are attacking the surface. The real, the reason they're coming up to the surface is because their home ecology is being destroyed mm-hmm. because of, of the economy that's, uh, because of global capitalism and mm-hmm. what's happening on the surface world. So again, like I'm really interested also the way the writers and artists are thinking and developing allegories yeah. within the narrative itself. Yeah. So uh, what are some of the ways that Aquaman, so again, both maybe narratively within the comics themselves, but also the character himself, Aquaman, um, what are some of the ways that he's, uh, addressing some of these, these monsters of capitalism, right? That the, whether, um, you know, it's it's literal like combating, or if it's a more allegorical kind of combat. Yeah, so staying with the first narrative arc again from the New Fifty Two series. Um, initially, it seems like we're in the genre of like of monsters and horror. The trench are just attacking the shores, and there's like again, there's just this long history in American popular culture of like sharks and piranhas and right all these monsters coming up and attacking. Mm-hmm. Um, and where the sort of the military industrial complex on the shore is like, let's destroy these monsters. They're a threat to our society. Aquaman takes this almost opposite approach saying like, no, we need to understand them. And it almost becomes like a scientist, like explaining like, why are they coming to shore? Why are they feeding? Would they, they never have come up here before? And Aquaman and his partner Mara, which also maybe we'll, we'll discuss how she brings up an eco-feminist perspective. They dive down to the, the bottom of the ocean um, and Aquaman says like, I've never, even though he's at home in the ocean, he never goes down to these depths and he realizes there's toxins in the water. They're being poisoned be- because of activities and economies happening on the surface. So almost allegorically, it becomes a different way. Like how do we approach and view the trench? The military approach is like to see them through a scope. And I'm interested, even in the comic, you see this visualization of like the scopes, like targeting the mm. trench to kill, where Aquaman and Mera develop this sort of like this entangled empathy that these monsters need. They're not monsters at all. This is a, a humanistic, capitalistic, ideological category that's being projected onto species that are just disrupting the system itself, which is violent. Yeah. So at the end of the narrative arc, it's at least the way I argue, like, all right, even monster flips around. It's not the trench that are monsters. 
the economy itself is shown to be monstrous for destroying all these species in the ocean that the human world is largely ignorant of. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you, I think you talk about that a little bit in your introduction. Um, just that, that idea of, of loss of diversity that like when it comes to the oceans, we really have no idea how many species have been lost. Um, how many species we are like actively losing um, just because there's so much about them that we don't know. And I think, um, you know, kind of highlighting that, that lack of knowledge is, is maybe, you know, an important aspect of, of this work and that, you know, it's a, it's a comic book and it's, you know, for a lot of people, it's kind of a silly, like you, you yourself even said that they were revamping with the new 52 to kind of bring a younger audience to it. Um, But it's great that like in, in doing so we've got this nice, um, you know, um, I don't want to call it a side narrative, but you know, like a, a way to kind of, uh, attach these really important discussions to that thing that, um, you know, maybe people weren't thinking about beforehand in, at least in the same ways. Yeah. And I think like, and again, just using like Aquaman to think of him as this like ecological figure that, um, is so important, I think to think about is precisely like his hyphenated identity of being both human and being part of the ocean. And if we collectively are going to have a future on this planet, we need to think about the way that our identities and our lives are enabled and predicated on the health of the oceans mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, from oxygen to our fresh water to, to, to climate regulation. Um, and, and the owners of the ocean have to become part of our story. And I think Aquaman becomes such a it's, – it's a nice way into thinking about our relationship to the ocean. And again, and I think this series is so important of doing it because it also highlights – I think this could be sometimes the problem of oceanic studies. It seems like you could be leaving the human behind mm. in issues of capitalism behind or race or gender in the, at least the comic book uh, the comic book history of Aquaman and the movie iterations. Race and gender and colonial capitalism are all central to understanding the ocean. Have you noticed a parallel in terms of um... – the the way that uh, again because you know Aquaman as you pointed out and you know those of us who are kind of familiar with the character know was it was a joke for a lot of years um, and in some ways I think still is you know depending yeah. on you, you like you, even in the book you talk about how um, you know with this new fifty two there was kind of some self deprecating humor happening there where where Aquaman's making fun of himself a little bit and um, and so uh, but. Arguably, I think largely with you know both the 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 new fifty two, but also the the movie version of it. Um, you know, seeing this rise in popularity of the character of Aquaman, do you see any parallels there with um, the ways that we're seeing an increased discussion with uh, the ocean or about the ocean or um, you know kind of the, the blue humanities? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I teach this material also, and I think it's, again, it's anecdotal, but like my students are more interested in learning and talking about Aquaman. Whereas you said before, just like, you know, Aquaman was a joke. No one wants to talk or no one's favorite superhero is Aquaman. But the importance of the casting of, of Jason Momoa um, and James Wan making the film and this movement, and this is sort of like the, the trajectory of my book moving from like a blonde hair, blue eyed Aquaman to like an indigenous and black Aquaman makes all the difference in the world. And the way to think about the oceans is the story of, of racialized minority minorities is the relation is, is, is the, is the history of colonization is the history of 
of different futures, delinked from whiteness and delinked from colonial capitalism. Mm-hmm. And the students and even some of the reception I've had, just like, um, just kind of so excited with like the casting of Jason Momoa and what's happened in the Black Panther with the Submariner mm-hmm. being cast as like an indigenous figure also in like, again, moving away from the sort of white imaginary to um, indigenous black and brown imaginary, I think is so important for thinking not just about Aquaman's uh, popularity, but the, his political importance and how we frame the ocean. Yeah. Um, I would actually love to hear more about uh, the work you're doing in the classroom with this. Um, I, I'm a, that's always one of my like go-to yeah. uh, questions, curiosities is um, I love hearing about what people are doing, you know, in, in the classroom with their work. Um, so I would love to just hear, you know, kind of your general approach. Like, do you just assign a couple of issues? Do you assign, you know, the whole first run, you know, what's, what's kind of your approach. Um, if you have any like specific activities or discussion prompts that you're using, um, I think just a, a good incentive for people listening right now um, to maybe try and bring some of this stuff into their own classrooms. Yeah. So, I, I, so teaching DC and Marvel, I've only done it twice now. Um, and it's daunting, right? It's such a large <laughs> history. Like how do you even begin to teach? But what, what I did, which I thought was successful um is that whether it's DC or Marvel to, to ask students to invest in the app, which gives them access to a vast mm. archive and allow students to say like, you know, there's so much passion, which comes in the classroom. And to me, those are the classes I love the most. We're both where I'm sort of decentered from authority figure, but where students come, like they want to begin class to discuss and debate, but I allow students to help create the syllabus with what are some of your favorite narrative runs? What issues should we read? And we mm. spent like the first two weeks constructing the syllabus. So again, like allowing students to be content creators and become teachers. And I just love the unexpected directions class goes. And the other thing I do, which I so highly recommend, especially in comics course courses, is to bring in creative assignments. And I ask students to do a few things. One is to write a script of their own from their favorite superhero to involve some social or political Mm. issue that interests them. And first we start with like, just write a two page story and have them think in terms of panels. Um, And then finally, just sort of working across departments, trying to find like art students, or if they, even if they don't think they're a good artist, how do you draw some of it? And to think about the process of visualizing it. So even sort of going back to Aquaman, if you care about ecological issues, how do you begin to visualize plastic pollution, especially when so much plastic pollution might be microplastics, which are invisible to the human eye? How do you make that visible? Is it like an aesthetics of spectacle? Um, And just watching students have different aesthetic solutions and have them show it, you know, like hang up their work or yeah. project it digitally. It's just so cool. And it's, it's such a fun course to teach. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do a, a shameless uh, plug a little bit. Oh, uh, please. At, yeah. Um, no, yeah. For, uh, four C's, uh, gosh, it's been, I don't know, four or five years ago, but the composition, the big composition conference, um, sure. we, uh, where I did my, uh, PhD, um, there was, uh, the head of our department was actually uh, a big comics scholar. And so he put together this panel that we all participated in. Um, but we basically, we all dressed up as superheroes and came in. That's and, awesome. but, um, and it was like, it was kind of mirroring, like I said, at that time, like the infinity gauntlet was like the big, um, the big thing to do, but we were, um, 
basically talking about using comics in the composition classroom and a lot of the stuff that that um you know we were promoting in that um is is stuff that you're doing there so i think that's awesome yeah the idea of like um you know uh one of the things that i love about comics is that it's it's an inherently collaborative medium um like we you know we have yes we have an author you know who kind of gets credit but like you know you've got the pencilers and the colorists and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff um and so i love kind of um, I, I like tying that into just the notion of collaboration in general, which is just really, really important in terms of any kind of progress or um, overcoming of, of you know, societal issues or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome, Brandon. That's so cool. <laughs> I, I mean, just to sort of like follow up on that, something I do in the class and the book also, which again, just to open up students' kind of social imagination, as you said. I mean, the creation of comics is so collaborative, but to have students like – I mean, I think they fetishize the writer and I think mm-hmm, the industries, sure. both Marvel oh, and DC absolutely. do as well also, right? Like mm-hmm. it's like author first and most of the authors are white. But what's interesting is so many of the, the pencilists, the inkers, the colorists are are from different communities. So mm-hmm. in Aquaman, from the, from the, in the New 52, Jeff Johns is white, but Rod Reis, Ivan Reis, um, uh, Joe Prado, they're all Latinx creators. And to think like to have both in my work, but asking students what is maybe the pencil is doing? How maybe is their identity mm. informing the choices they're making in terms of like of color or inking and to have them look from different perspectives to sort of, you know, it's, it's fun to watch them work through it, right? We know what the writer's doing. I want you to just like create a two-page analysis just looking at the inking. When is there more like, when is the ink thicker? When is it thinner? When is it breaking apart? Um, and how does that relate to some of the themes? Yeah. I think it's yeah. just really interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I want to jump back a little bit because I do want to make sure that we we discuss them uh, uh, at, at some point. Um, but I would I would love to hear more about uh, Mara and Black Manta, both in terms of you know kind of what they're adding to this overall discussion. Uh, again, both in terms of you know with Mara as kind of that eco feminist uh, perspective and, and what how that's coming through in the comics, um, but then also that kind of um, you know, racialized uh, ecology of of Black Manta and what what's coming in there, and then if you if that also kind of leads you into you know your discussions in in the afterward where you get into some of those um, indigenous and um, you know the the um, newer version of Aquaman who is just the I can't remember what what that what was the, what was that run called where they did the. Future state. Future state. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. I could, I, I like it was right there. And then, yeah, right. um, you know, that run where they specifically were looking at making, um, you know, non-white um, versions of a lot of their, their staple of characters. <clears throat> so, so going back and I think, and I love teaching this, I mean, it's in my book, but I love teaching this issue also. The, in 1976, when Black Manta's unmasked um, and we learned for 10 years, you didn't know, you know, he's, he's this, this unraced figure. He's fully masked. Um, but when he's unmasked in 1976, um, and it's disclosed that he's African-American, he says to Aquaman, you never wondered why I was called Black Manta. And he gives this history, like he left the surface world because of like systemic white supremacy. And he wants to create his own kingdom underwater. And this idea is sort of like initially uh, seems like maybe the Marcus Garvey of the sea, right? A sort of a uh, a Black Panther figure. But in that very same issue, Black Manta commits a crime which is almost the most egregious, horrific crime 
in DC history and Marvel history, one of the most, is he kills Aquaman's baby, right? So at the same time, there's like this hint of like this progressive black character. He also becomes this figure of, um, of, of, of this figure of like blackness being equivalent to evil, to, right? To incorrigible criminality, this, like this, this hatred and this evil that sort of exceeds all norms, even within Marvel and DC. So that haunting history that, uh, that Black Manta is willing to go to any length to make Aquaman suffer, including killing his own child. <laughs> um, and, and it's interesting, the late 20th century, some of the most interesting Mara narratives is like her post-traumatic stress, uh, her PTSD. She's traumatized by the fact that her baby was killed. And this comes up again and again. So one of the things that was like really interesting in thinking through in 2011, when there's this reboot of the series and there's this haunting history which is a racist history right again like making black man mm-hmm. into this this figure this like black avenger without any political depth just like willing to go to like untold uh and again like just to be clear every super villain's evil but there's like limits to their evil. sure <laughs> you don't expect them to kill the baby right like it doesn't happen but it happens with the black super villain killing a white baby and how that's feeding into um you know um white racism white mm-hmm. anti-blackness um in the way that, you know, beginning in 2011, Jeff Johns seems very aware of this and does not introduce a baby, you know, but he's sort of like waiting for this, for the specter to happen. And he develops these really interesting allegories. So, for example, in the New 52, in his fourth run, um, just to make a really complex history, just brief, but Aquaman real, uh, learns rather um, – that the history of Atlantis where he lives is the history of fascism, where it was close mm. to outsiders. So it becomes a really interesting sort of racial allegory. And yet at the same time, and I love these like contradictions, Black Manta is still represented as this one-dimensional like figure of radical evil. And again, because <laughs> of the burden of representation, and there's just not a lot of black supervillains, right? Um, you know, it feeds into this again, this, this sort of white racism that's going to equate blackness with criminality. Mm-hmm. And there's these panels within the New 52 where you see new, when they capture uh, Black Manta and he's like in an orange jumpsuit and behind bars. Like it's just, it's participating and replicating some of the most horrific kind of racist imagery while at the same time somewhat aware of like, of, of race. Right. And it's, it's interesting how much James Wan in his movie sort of corrects a, a lot of James, Jeff Johns's narrative, giving a history of Black Manta, giving him a father, giving him a name. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all these different sort of levels of both how he represents the ocean, but recognizing, um, you know, these like really delicate racial dynamics and gender dynamics. And, uh, and again, um, you know, a marriage just becomes interesting just, just very quickly because she was always a marginal character. But beginning in 2011, there was this effort to make her as equivalent to Aquaman. So you have this sort of like, you know, this 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 um, having this uh, being a woman, being a superhero, um, which, again, shouldn't be so radical. But looking at her narratives, what, how, again, how does her representation of her of the uh, of the ocean and her experiences on the surface world how does that differ from Aquaman? And it becomes a way both to think and to teach about, and, and again, write about this, but like the relative privileges of Aquaman for, be, although he's humiliated on land, uh, people make fun of him because he talks to fish. And again, he's not a real superhero. Mara encounters this sort of world of patriarchy and misogyny. And it's a way to think about, um, you know, just th- those dimensions also. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a important aspect of, 
historically of superheroes in general is um i I was so i teach uh superman red sun a lot in my intro to lit class um and we always talk about the fact that like yeah superman is technically an alien like he is literally an other but he can pass as a straight white guy really easily yeah um he's hyper masculine and and so um the notions of of just that um like yeah, someone like Aquaman might be laughed at, but he's still, you know, in terms of of the hierarchies of society, he's still in a privileged position over a lot of other folks within um, his, you know, his uh, circle, his grouping. Yeah, absolutely. So just those nuances of like thinking about gender, and race, and identity is just so important. That uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I just to say one of the things, just to just remind me thinking about just even gender, like the launch of New 52. I just love teaching this moment. It's in my book, but like this, like this corporate initiative, like to practice diversity. And there were more like African-American characters and queer characters. There was 52 titles launches and there's only one woman pe- as an author. Mm. Gail Simone was the only woman. And like, and again, I go into this sort of like this whole history, but there's sort of this corporate blindness to yeah. their own privilege, right? Both in terms of race, ethnicity, and gender. And to, to watch this, I mean, it's not a progressive history. So progress is never linear. But uh, it's just, I think it's really exciting to find new progressive writers and artists both recognizing this history and trying to correct it or readdress or redress it. Yeah, and I think pushing against... Uh, I mean, again, I think just the, the comics industry as a system... Um, is arguably you know very toxic in general i mean just the whole like the fanboy culture and Mm -hmm. um the the pushback that you know um when it when a a comic book you know decides to quote unquote go woke um that like the you know people flip out about that um and it kind of pushes back on those that toxicity that even even you know one little change um is is ridiculous and I, i i was actually thinking about that um in terms of that that kind of future state aquaman right mm-hmm. that it's it's not it's not actually aquaman like it's a different right. aquaman it's a it's right. not yeah. it's not like you're taking arthur curry the actual character and making him a person of color you are creating a completely separate version of that that gets to be um gets to be you know like that like that you're not going to there's almost that fear of of you know that the comics fan base uh and so as much progress as they're making they're still uh as you're pointing out kind of falling victim to their own biases and their own reluctance to push against those systems too much right i mean that's just a great way to put it right because it's like you're you're right like the future state and maybe even i love this graphic novel which i teach i don't know if you teach you brought me the ocean which is which is a a queer aqua aqua aquaman right it's Mm -hmm. so interesting he's 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 queer. Um, he's a queer uh, person of color, like wrestling, like wrestling both with his powers and his sexuality. Uh, Jackson Hyde is who's going to be the future Aquaman, but it's like somewhat contained from the canon. It's not mm-hmm. Arthur Curry, right. so they're trying to sort of have it always. But um, I do think because I do love teaching comics and I love like reading comics to highlight these sort of moments of possibility. And maybe mm-hmm. this is like this is reading allegorically also, right? And to recognize that the, this corporate structure is an author in itself. That's just looking to maximize profit, to have like all the versions possible and not to upset their toxic (laughs) fan base. But how can we um, in our privileged positions as academics, 
I like maybe stories that the corporations are maybe marginalizing a bit and put them center into our course, to yeah. open up these possibilities. And I love sort of investing with students, like at least not investing is not the right word, but uh, um, you're telling students like there are futures in comic creation. It might not be for Marvel or DC, but there's right. an audience for that. And to think about yourself, so many, at least of our students want to be writers, but to write for comics or to draw for comics and to get into these industries they're so exciting and there's so much to me at least i think so much opportunity uh for different people to enter because the the the, the barrier of entrance is lower there's so many comics being produced independently yeah. Yeah. or televisions or movies even though the, there's more of them being made there's still like the cost is still so high comics is still digital or pulp or cheap paper and uh there's a real desire for new stories for progressive stories for different voices yeah absolutely Awesome. I think that's a, that's a, I, I could sit here for hours and hours and hours and keep yeah. going with this, but I think that's a, a great, powerful um, uh, moment to kind of uh, end on. So uh, yeah. let's, uh, let's shift to ending on a roll. So uh, yeah. I've got my 12 sided die here. I'm going to uh, roll it at random and then uh, whichever number comes up, I'll ask you that question. Uh, okay. So here we go. Oh, it is number one. Uh, do you have a favorite word? Uh, and then obviously like, don't just, it's kind of a yes or no question, but tell us what the favorite word is and maybe why, uh, that is your favorite word. Um, so one of my favorite words, this this is going to sound really dorky, but, uh, I think it's very like, (laughs) we're on an academic podcast, we're in an academic, talking about comic books. So, right. (laughs) So I, I think the word. I think the word Ruth is really interesting because it almost doesn't exist. But like, we know the word ruthless to have no mercy. Mm-hmm. And it's coming from this biblical character that showed mercy. But I find it so interesting in the, the history of language. <laughs> the adjective Ruth was used more. Like it was an adjective to describe, describe someone of compassion and goodness. And I think it's very, I don't know if it's my favorite word, but I think it's such an interesting telling word to think about our society. We have the word for its negation. We have mm-hmm. like ruthless people. <laughs> but the lack of that adjective described like just a sense of ethical goodness or commitment to goodness of Ruth, like these words that have been lost, which, you know, articulate these sort of ideals that we all need, I think is, is both one of my favorite and also I think very telling. Um, and then, you know, which I love teaching and thinking about superheroes because they are about our ideals. They're, it's like, it's not about giving in and capitulating to pessimism. Right. It's our capacity to transcend the horrors of the present with these ideals and the ideal of like a Ruth of being someone filled with compassion and mercy and that there where Ruth is a biblical figure that, that kind of figured that I think superheroes can be our contemporary figures that give us those concrete visions of goodness that we all need and can strive for and that we need new generations to give us different raced, uh, gendered figures of, of goodness and nice. progressive politics. Awesome. That's a, that's a really, really good answer to that. Yeah. Uh, it, re- it reminds me of the, I think it was in 10 things I hate about you that, that nineties movie. Uh, that's a kind of a retelling of the taming of the shrew. And at one point she says, um, I know I can be overwhelmed and I can be underwhelmed. <laughs> Can I ever just be whelmed? <laughs> so, so, by the way, did you, did you ever watch a Young Justice by any chance? The cartoon? Uh, not really. No. That same joke is stolen from the movie. Oh, really? And I forgot which of the characters. Like, it becomes this running joke saying, like, they try to repurpose whelmed. They keep on saying when everything's okay. They're like, I'm whelmed. I'm whelmed. Nice. <laughs> but it's like it's a funny sort of like an episode, but it's like a, 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 a cartoon based on superheroes. But yes, awesome. Whelmed and Ruth. Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. We're gonna start. We're gonna start a revolution here on the, totally, the podcast. Totally. 
Every everyone this this July, we want to hear lots of Ruths and Whelms at the, <laughs> totally. at, the at the in-person conference this year. So um <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again uh so much for for being here. Um do you wanna share with uh, our listeners where people can find you, social media, websites, anything like that? Uh yeah, I mean I'm I'm more than happy to answer emails. Uh look at my uh Ryan Paul at Northeastern Illinois University. You can find my email there, r-poll at neiu.edu. And I'm at Twitter, Ryan Paul too. I'm not really active on Twitter, but, you know, I'll, I'll see you. But I'll, I'll be more than happy, yeah. But uh, I really appreciate it, Brandon. This has been awesome. It's yeah. been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, same. I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, and thank you all for for listening and joining us as well. If you have an idea for an episode, um, you can find us on uh, Twitter. Uh, you can get a hold of us through email, whether it's to share your own work or uh, have us reach out to someone that you think would be a great guest on the show. Our Twitter is asley underscore ecocast. Our Gmail is asley.ecocast at gmail.com. And uh, our Twitter page also has uh, the link tree on there, which has like a Google form and stuff that you can fill out to submit uh, your proposals and ideas. Um, and if you enjoy listening to EcoCast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, and tweeting about today's show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.